pray with me this morning. Father, may these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, yeah. It's my turn to preach this morning. And as Andrew said, uh, he kind of lobbed a bomb to me. Kind of like, oh, what's that game? There's a Mario game, right? Where the bomb guy is like, and you lob it to your friend and then it explodes on them and they die. But yeah, that's what's happening this morning. So, woohoo! Um, yeah, I would just advise if any of you are considering preaching and you think that you have that gift, just don't. Um, because what ends up happening is that the week leading up to preaching, uh, ish gets real in your own life. Uh, whatever you're about to preach about, you really never get to walk into it confidently and be like, yes, I am doing great in this area of life, and now I will share that with you. Instead, at least in my experience, what happens is that God wrecks you Monday through Friday up until Saturday night, and then you show up here like, oh, hello, I think I have two words to say. So that's how I'm feeling this morning, um, mostly because I... I think the scripture we just read is something that I really wrestle with um, as a leader, my own pride, my own desire for control. Um, so just a couple disclaimers before we jump in. Number one is if you brought your Bible with you this morning, I'd really recommend just having it open. As you could tell, that was like four slides of text, and so it's a lot of scripture this morning. So have your Bible open, have your smartphone open. It's James 4, 1 through 12 this morning. Um, another disclaimer is I'm going to swear in the sermon. I'm going to swear one time. Um, I hope it doesn't offend you. I just, you know, if you have babies here, you can cover their ears when that happens. They probably will forget about that. Um, And finally, yeah, I I guess for me, I want to just say that, man, God is doing a number on my heart through this scripture, uh, through this series in James that we've been doing. And so I'm very much in process. So I don't stand before you today as some expert who has figured this out. Quite the contrary, Um, Chris and I were, up last night crying because this scripture is really hitting me in a very intense way. Um, So I share that. I'm going to share things with you that are very hard to share. Um, I guess that's kind of my MO now every time I preach at Sanctuary, but that seems to be what God is doing. So I'm going to share things that are hard to share um, and that are put me in a vulnerable place. So I guess I would ask from you guys just the respect um, to to hold what I'm saying with an open hand and to not judge from where you're sitting because I think it's hard to sit here, to stand here today and to preach this sermon. So, wow, what an what a intro. Let's jump into this. Um, I want to tell you guys about the first time that I ever swore in my life. Um, I am someone who has struggled with anger issues since I was a young child. So I want to take you to Connecticut circa 2001. I think there's a picture of me and my family. Maybe there's not and it didn't work out. Never mind. Well, imagine a fresh-faced Aaron that looks really innocent, and that's all you need to know. So I was probably 10 years old, and my brother Nick and I, many of you know him, had this very interesting dynamic in our quarreling, in our fighting. So Nick had like two and a half years on me, which means that he had two and a half years of greater wisdom to know how to act in a fight to receive the least amount of punishment from mom and dad. So what that meant was that Nick would whisper evil things to me, and then I would scream, and I would get in trouble, because that was what was on my parents' radar, was the screaming. Or he would, like, 
yeah, come next to me and say something really quietly, and then I'd slap him, and then I would get grounded. So he had figured that out because he had a couple years on me, but I had not yet figured that out. Um, so we were living in Connecticut at the time between two different overseas moves, and I was starting to catch on that it's actually brilliant, his strategy. So I was going to use it against him. So I was plotting and scheming, how am I going to win against my brother? And honestly, I can't even remember what this argument was about, but Nick had done something to really make me angry. We were home, um, I think my, just my mom was home. It was like after school one day, and Nick had this, he was an eighth grader, so he was like super hormonal and angsty, so they gave him like a loft apartment over the garage that was like his lair of teenage boy smell and Lord of the Rings lore and whatever, like he had a lair. And then I had this like lavender purple room on the other side of the house. So Nick had made me angry, and instead of doing my usual explosive response, I was calculated this time. So I thought, I sat in my room, I thought about what my plan would be. Uh, I was going to confront him, but I was going to do it out of the reach of my mother. So I walk across the whole house, and I shout up to Nick's lair. I'm like, Nicholas, Nicholas, come down. And he opens his door, it's all like dark, and like the, the waft of axe comes out of the room. He's like, what? What do you want? And I look up at him from the stairs, and he's up there, and I'm like, Nicholas, you're a jackass. And then I sprint to the other side of the house, and I run away from him. That was the first time I ever swore in my entire life. And he was like, what? And he exploded, and he got in trouble. And I won. It was amazing. And that's how I won my first fight with my brother, and that was my first swear. I heard it from my dad, for sure, over the phone in some conversation he was having. I think as long as I have been a human walking around on the earth, I have quarreled and struggled with the desires within me. That's the first chunk of the scripture. James is writing to a community that we can assume are probably Jewish Christians, and this whole passage is actually to the leadership. So I just want to say something, is that if you're in the room and you don't identify as a leader, you don't get a free pass through this scripture or this passage. He's talking to anyone who has influence over other people. So whether you're a mom in the room or you're some kind of leader in your industry or you're a student and you have influence over your friends, uh, James is going right for the guttural of people who have some kind of leadership over others. And he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? That whole entire story of my first swear was this desire to win, desire to be right, to have victory over my conniving older brother. And I did, I won, which is great. Um, but that's been my entire life is these warring desires within me of wanting to be right and wanting to have control. And part of what's going on in this passage is that James is saying, you leaders, you people who have influence over others, the fact that you are vying for control, for power, for ambition, is causing conflict and quarrels in your community. And you're misusing your leadership. This is a, it's a strong word. They are going to war within themselves and with each other, and they're not inviting God into any of it. I think this is a mistake that we make a lot. Maybe you make it. I make it all the time. We go about our daily lives. We feel very in control. Um, we have our, 
iPhones that wake us up in the morning, we go to work with whatever vehicles get us there, we, we have control over our day, we know our schedule that's planned out ahead of us, maybe we're gonna go to studio for five hours, and we come home at the end of the night. We've set up a lot of systems that make us feel like we're in control. And yet, oftentimes, I feel like I can go through an entire day without stopping and inviting God into the process. So especially when conflict comes up and the desire to control, I will just like go, 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 explode in anger on someone and never stop and pause to invite God into that. James says you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. How many of you have ever felt that way, that you have asked God with the wrong motives? God, would you please help me to get this next promotion? Or would you help me, um, I don't know, to get an A on this paper? Like, those are fine things, but we're asking ultimately for our own ambition and for our own conceit. I think the crux of this scripture for me that James is saying is that there are two ways to live. There really isn't much gray area in the passage. He says, either you're friends with the world or you're friends with God. And he says that if you're friends with the world, you're actually an enemy of God. But if you're friends with God, you're an enemy of the world. And I think this passage today is going to be really hard for us to stomach as a community because we are a church for the sake of the city. We're a church in the middle of Providence trying to redeem the culture. So I think there's a lot that could be misheard in this sermon. So I want you to just listen closely and, and sort of follow along. Um, there are two ways of living, being led by the passions and desires within you or being led by God into humility, into peace, and into community. So I want to read a passage from 1 John of what does friendship with the world actually mean. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. Wanting, wanting, wanting. There's something about the way that our culture says a leader should be. Someone who is in power, is in control, and knows what they're doing all the time, right? I'm sure you've been in meetings before when you're like, okay, I need to look confident and assured that I am in control of this situation. There's a picture here of, for the Christian, again, as Andrew said, this is a conversation for Christians about their hypocrisy, that they have claimed to have given their lives over to God, and yet they're doing everything in their own strength and in their own control. They're friends with the world. Many of the leaders at this time were trying to fight uh, for power over other leaders and going to revolutionary means to do that. One translation of the text where it says fights and quarrels, it actually says uh, warring and sorting. I think it's tempting for us to read this and think, oh, okay, they're like having a couple arguments. No, they actually wanted to kill other people. These are Christians who wanted to kill other people and get them out of the way so that their agenda could move forward. It sounds so extreme, like I would never choose to do that. And yet in my own daily life, how many times do I choose a way that is not the way of Jesus? How many times do I choose to micromanage my students that I work with instead of trusting 
and giving them space to actually learn and grow on their own. I think often we have this daily dualistic choice between are we going to go the way of the world or the way of the cross? And that's what James is bringing up in the middle of this passage. It's really easy to forget the plot and to follow our own desires, our own control. I think part of the reason that this is so is because it's really hard to give up control. It's really hard to give up our pride. There's a couple things that the leaders did that James is rebuking, and I just want to point them out for you. One is that their desires, verse 2, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Their desires were for control, for the wrong things. This has been very live for me. I've realized in the past couple weeks a really big blind spot in my own leadership. So you guys know by now I'm a campus minister. I work with students at Bridgewater State University. Um, And a huge part of my experience in this job has been since day one I was planting, much like Andrew planted sanctuary. So since day one I didn't have students. I didn't have meetings. I didn't have a space on campus. There was a lot of humility at the beginning of this job for me. And so I think I thought by year three, like, I've got the humility thing down. Like, I started with nothing, started at the bottom, but now we're here, right? Like, I started with zero, and then God added more to our number and grew this ministry. And so I felt like back in 2012, that's when I had to die to my own desire to control and to my own pride. But I think what God is bringing up for me lately is that actually there is a red current of control running through my everyday existence. I was just on a trip called Serve Up. Uh, We take a bunch of students down to Tampa, to New Orleans for spring break and challenge them to do restorative justice work and to spend their power on behalf of others. And during this trip, I thought it was all going well. I had my students. We were doing great. And in the middle of the week, one of my staff members, one of my colleagues approaches me and he says, Aaron, you're micromanaging everything. Stop it. I was like, excuse me? (laughs) what? And granted, his timing was not great, and he didn't have any, like, specific examples to support this claim against me, Uh, but it totally threw me off, and that word micromanage, like, lodged in the back of my brain, and I started to reflect on, like, all the ways that on the bus ride down there and during the week, I was in the middle of everything. I was like, I'll be the MC. I'll do this. I'll assign that. You talk to them. You do this. I was trying to control every possible variable because I assumed in my pride that I knew what was best. And this was actually really frustrating and limiting the leadership of my colleagues. I was micromanaging. There were literally moments when I would see a student conversation going on and one of my colleagues was entering that conversation and I would hover I was like hovering to make sure that my colleagues didn't say what I deemed to be the wrong thing. Like that is control, a desire to control because I selfishly assume that I know the best way this conversation needs to go, the best way this trip needs to unfold. There's like flaming pride happening in the leaders in this community and it's very real for me too. So the whole passage comes to this climax where James says, that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. There's this idea that God's grace is available to these leaders, but their pride is so loud, their control is so intense that they're unable to hear from God and unable to receive his grace. There's no room in their lives for God. 
just like I said, they've been going on throughout their days without actually asking God, is this what you want me to do? Is this how you want me to speak to this person? Their pride is so loud. There's a lot of Old Testament language in this passage about killing and coveting and a jealous God. You might remember when God gave over the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, what is it? It's to love the Lord your God with all your strength and your might and to love your neighbor as yourself. God is a jealous God who wants all of us, and yet these leaders are so fixed on their own desires and their own agendas that they're totally missing it. If you go to the end of the passage where he says this little bit about judges and laws and do not slander against your brother and sister, when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, you're sitting in judgment on it. What James is trying to say is like, you have now taken on God's role. You're a leader, you've been given people over, of influence, and you have started to judge them and speak against them and pick them apart. That's not your job. That's actually my job. There is one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. You, when you judge someone else, are actually assuming my role. So James is not only saying to the leaders, you have upset me and you're causing conflict in your community. He's saying that their prideful behavior is actually an offense towards God. How many times do we actually sit with our own crap and say, wow, this is offensive to God? The fact that I'm trying to control my kids, the fact that I am judging my spouse, that's actually not my role. But we think that we know best and we think that we know better. There's something uh, about this word hubris. Are you guys familiar with it? Um, you find it a lot in sort of ancient Greek mythology. It is the ultimate human sin. Hubris is when you as a human think that you are equal or above the gods. Hubris is the idea that you know best. The idea that you, more so than God, know what needs to happen in this situation. And that's what these leaders are committing. He says that when you judge someone, you're not keeping the law, you're sitting over it and on top of it. How many of us wrestle with scripture or wrestle with theology? I think if you look around the room, like the people you're sitting next to might think X, Y, or Z about sexuality, about women's roles in the church, about sin, about grace. How many of us actually look at the Bible, look at scripture, look at God and say, I know best. I know best. I sit on top of this. And if there's anything that I'm about to hear that displeases me or messes with my view of the world, then it's God's fault. That's our immediate, that's my immediate go-to. I have my own system of thought. And if God interrupts that and challenges that, it's his fault. It's not me. These leaders were sitting on top of scripture, looking down on it, instead of submitting themselves to God and saying, I'm going to trust that you probably know a better way of leading these people. You probably know a better way of learning to live in peace and in humility than I do. I wonder if in our own church community, there are places where we sit on top of the law and we look down and judge others. Can you guys think about that in your own lives? Like, where are the places where you are very quick to say, no, 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 I am right, <laughs> they are not. This happens to me all the time. He goes for the guttural. He says that there is only one lawgiver and one judge. And the ultimate invitation here is submission. Verse seven, 
Submit yourselves then to God. We're going to get into like what that actually looks like, but for a moment, I just want us to, <laughs> to be honest. I think part of this whole passage is, are we honest with the reality that oftentimes we think that we're God? And maybe that's not a conscious decision, but subconsciously in the ways that we order our lives, the ways that we handle our money, the ways that we treat our coworkers, we're actually not submitting. We're not allowing God to be the leader who shows us the way forward. This is hubris. Part of this for me uh, comes into play in my relationship with my in-laws. Um, I'm not going to share a lot, but I, yeah, when I got to know Chris's family um, and saw they, they are people who identify as Christians, and when I got to know them, um, I started to judge them in ways that were really unfair. Um, I started to look at their lives and look at my life and say, well, clearly I am following Jesus more purely, more honestly. Um, and I started to basically look at my own life and elevate it. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and they're not. And it's come to my attention, like, the hubris of that. I'm sitting in God's seat judging people because they're not living according to my standards. When God has invited me to humble myself and to love them and to trust that he's at work in ways that I'm not. It's just one small example of, of hubris. So I'm going to read to us uh, a poem that I wrote two weeks ago. It's interesting in preparing for this sermon. Um, I was having a moment sitting with God where I was recognizing, wow, my own arrogance that I, I would think that I would know best. Uh, when God, you've made me and, and you actually <laughs> can be far more right than I. And as I read this poem, I want I guess my desire is that it would wash over you guys, that as I read it, you would sit and reflect for a moment on where are the places in my own life as a, as a leader of culture, as an influencer, as a student, where are the places in my own life where I am holding on to control and not trusting that God actually wants to come in and wash over my life with grace and with humility, with peace. So I'm going to read this, uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about, okay, if we really are full of pride, where do we go from here? What's God's invitation? So is that okay with you guys that I read this? All right. It's a little embarrassing. <laughs> oh, the arrogance of this human heart, this one in seven billion center of the world, this self-obsession, self-referential busyness, this check-the-mirror duck-lips folly, this blind spot like horses on a track, unable to pivot right, left, to look up, to see you, to grasp my smallness, my infinitesimalness. I read of wrath and death and poo-poo this God, arms crossed, guess you lost this one, arrogance, hubris. Isn't that the core all along? To think that this composition of sinews and hormones and toenails is equal to the gods, equal to Yahweh, the three in one. Here we spin our tiny systems. Here we boast control and fixed rates and head cocked surety. Who is man that you are mindful of him? Forgive my hand wringing, plotting narcissism. Forgive my, I'm different. Highly individual self-pander. 
Restore to me a proper perspective, a zooming out, a holy of holies, a knee bowed, a murmured confession. Sprinkle my face with gold, with God dust, dust. The markings of creation yielding to creator. The texture of acacia, the richness of purple, the viscosity of oil, the verbosity of red wine. Restore our fortunes, restore our hearts, restore our hope. Rightly planted on two feet, two feet planted on firmest rock. Your presence in cloud and fire and whisper. You are in the 16th minute of our 15, the very next step when our bodies give way, just out of reach, just reaching out. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Presence, paradox, peace. For just a moment of silence, let's just sit in this place where James is challenging these leaders. You think you know what you want, so you fight for it. You don't invite me into it, and you don't humble yourselves. You're lording your power over these communities when all I want is for you to come to me and to submit. Not in a way of blind submission, but in a way of like, oh, you're God and I'm not. So for just a moment, in the middle of this sermon, I want us to sit and do a little inventory of our lives. Like where are the places this week where you've been fighting for control? Where are the places this week where your pride has gotten the best of you? Can we confess that together for a moment? So we're gonna sit for a moment. There's a question on the screen and then we'll come back. There is good news in our pride being called out. I know this is a heavy word, but I just want to read the middle portion of this scripture to you. Verse 6, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 
God's grace enters and does the rest. Something about God's heart in all of this is that we would be free from our own pride and our own control and be able to live in a community where hypocrisy isn't present. He calls the leaders adulterers, sinners, double-minded. Those are harsh words. But James can say that because there's trust in this community that actually what we're striving for is humility and is peace and is grace. But in order for that to happen, Christians believe the best way is to invite God into that, to change our hearts. And so then he goes through this list of declarative statements, submit yourselves, resist the devil, come near to God, wash your hands, purify your hearts, humble yourselves. What God has been saying to me in this season as I've had to wrestle with my own pride and control is he said to me, Aaron, I love you in the middle of that. That's the gospel. That at my worst moment of pride, of control, of ugliness, God looks at that Aaron, not the one who's dressed nicely in front of you today. He looks at that Aaron, the one with snot dribbling down her face and anger who's punching the fridge because she's so angry. He looks at that Aaron and he says, but I give more grace. He wants to enter into that space, but I will not be able to hear him if I continue pushing forward in control and ambition and won't stop long enough to invite God into that moment and to humble me and to listen to him and to say, okay, what do you want to do? Who do I need to forgive? Where do I need to bite my tongue for the sake of peace in this community? So God's been inviting me into a season of consecration. Have you guys heard that word before? Consecration. It's this Old Testament word. It was for the priests who were the ones closest to God's presence. They were set apart and consecrated. There were things in their life that needed to be hacked off so that they could come into God's presence. And God has been inviting me into that through a lot of different things, through how I eat, through my relationship with alcohol. I just went through 40 days of no drinking. Um, I haven't been looking at my phone in the mornings or in the evenings, like just self-control and discipline. And it's not at all to earn God's grace. It's actually a response to God's grace. It's like, wow, if God loves me at my worst moment of pride and control, then I can give these things up to him. Surely I can because he's proven himself trustworthy. So part of submission is the ordering of things in their proper place. Part of that poem I read and this idea of hubris is that God is God and we are not. So we need to return to the ordering of things. There is an enemy that wants you to love the world and wants you to always be friends with the world. There is an enemy that is alluring you to say, yes, like having control is better. (laughs) Being in the driver's seat is better. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's a promise that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. I think the element of choice is very clear throughout the whole passage is human will. Like we either choose to war and quarrel with each other or we choose the path of humility and of of grace. And that whole bit about turning your your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom, it's just being honest with the reality of our own sin. It's saying, wow, I am really messed up. When Isaiah was confronted with his own sin, he said, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. Are we willing to wrestle and to stare at our sin right in the face and say, this is ugly and I need to invite God into that to make it beautiful again? 
There's a couple invitations for us this morning. I think for those who are Christians in the room, and this has been my invitation, um, I read this quote from a blog this week. This woman was talking about the struggles in her own church community. And she said, what makes us a church is how we choose love and humility over rightness. I'll say that again. What makes us a church is how we choose love and humility over rightness. Friends, can we choose love and humility over the need to be right? I don't know if I can. I feel like that's a tall order and almost impossible if it were not for God entering and, and actually helping me to do that. Um, I think we need to be willing to recognize that if we stay in our pride, we mute the voice of God in our lives and it causes dissension in our community. So part of this invitation uh, this week, I think, is to make room in your hearts, to ask God in, to pray, God, how would you, how would you have me treat this coworker? How would you have me discipline my child? He says that if you ask with the right motives, you'll actually have answered prayer. <laughs> For my friends here who don't identify as Christians, and this has been really overwhelming, I'm sorry, um, but I do think there is something we know ultimately that we want to live in communities that are free from hypocrisy, that are full of humility and full of peace. And so I would challenge you today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, just to try it for a week. Go through your week and stop at the moments when you feel tempted to take control and to push your agenda forward and stop. Maybe even experiment with prayer and invite God in say, God, would you show me how you want me to act in this situation? And see if that doesn't change the temperature in the room, doesn't change your heart, doesn't change this conflict from becoming an explosive sort of thing. Um, the invitation for us, I think, is to abide. It's to live our lives with God, <laughs> to stop in the moments of our, our worst anger and to invite him in. So as a response together, this is a prayer that has meant a lot for me. It's a prayer against vainglory. <laughs> Sounds like a really intense medieval word, and it is. Uh, vainglory is the excessive elation or pride over your own achievements and abilities. The excessive elation or pride over your own achievements or abilities. It's the sin of these church leaders that James is talking to. It's when you're so focused on getting there that you plow through people in order to get the goal achieved. It leads to superiority over others. I want us to pray this prayer together. Some of the language is very intense, um, but I think if we can own that as a community, pride is thinking of yourself too much or too little. I think we're all guilty of that. So I'd love to invite you to stand right now and to pray this prayer with me to close this morning. The words will be on the screen. Once again, Lord Jesus Christ, you can pray it out loud with me. I face the power of vainglory. Against the torrent of oblivion, I plead the blood of Jesus. When I am praised for the good you have done in me, help me to praise your goodness and to remember the sin that keeps me from praising you without ceasing. When I long for others to know how much I am suffering for you, Humble me before the cross and overwhelm my spirit with your unsurpassable love. When I imagine the great things I might do for you, give me small things to do by the power of your great love and grant me strength to do them. 
Deliver me from vainglory, that I might not be handed over to pride or sadness, but ascend by your little way to the humility in which my joy may be made complete. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As we're called to this repentance, remember what we're called to. We're called to living before God properly, to loving one's neighbor as oneself, to showing compassion for those in need, controlling the tongue, and generating peace in our community. We're called to exercise our gifts of leadership in a way that pleases God. These are good things. So we're gonna sing a few verses and we're going to come to the communion table. And I think this morning it's particularly poignant. Um, the grace of God in the bread and in the blood. Um, the grace of God to enter and to change our hearts from pride to humility. So let's sing together and then we'll come to the table together.